0: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible
2: tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Podcast. This is Molly, and I'm Kristen. Kristen, I have a joke for you. Okay. How many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't. I don't know, Molly. That's not funny.
1: Because uh, are you saying that feminists are serious?
3: There's there's serious sort of a stereotype women. that feminists are not funny. That they have the sense of humor of a wet noodle.
1: Ah. Uh, well, based on that joke, I'm questioning your <laughs> sense of humor, too, Molly. Right now,
3: I actually can't remember jokes very well. Yeah, I'm. I, It's a it's a problem. It's a lot of pressure
1: if someone asks you to tell them a funny joke, because it's a lot of pressure to be funny on the spot.
3: Yeah. The only joke I can ever remember by um by memory. Do you want to hear it? It's not much better than the feminist one. Okay, go for it. Why did the cookie cry? I don't know. Cause his mother had been a wafer so long. Oh, his mom was like a wafer. A wafer like a Nilla wafer. (laughs) All right, Molly. We're gonna have to work on (laughs) on your on your joke joke telling. But the thing is, I don't I don't pretend to be funny. I haven't made a career out of it, but. The reason that yet. we... Yet, exactly. But the reason we were going to talk about funny women today is because of something that was in the news this week, the week we we're recording. And that is that um, it was sort of a good news, bad news situation. First, we were reading all these news posts that Saturday Night Live had hired two new women to right. be in next year's cast. Sweet. Then we read that these were not additional women. These women were taking the place of two women that they fired, Casey Wilson and Michaela Watkins. Yep. Yeah. Um. And, you know, no one really knows why they got fired. They're just, they're giving out nice little sound bites right now about, you know, it was an honor to be there or whatever, making the next move. I mean, in my opinion, there were some unfunny people that could have maybe gone before them.
1: Sure. And, and now that, now that it's been a little while since the news broke, people are starting to question why exactly these women were fired and why it seemed like they were replaced by two perhaps prettier and, um, thinner, uh, female comedians. Right. So they're saying that maybe maybe SNL really wasn't as concerned about the joke telling, but more um, their appearance.
3: Right. There was a rumor. I mean, we're considering the source on this one since it was E! Entertainment Television. Um, <laughs> the number one source for news, really. <laughs> well, I mean, speak for yourself, Kristen. Um, that perhaps Casey Wilson was asked to lose weight and didn't. Right. Awkward. We don't know if that's true or not. But... Um, you know, let's let's set that aside. This was sort of the jumping off point. But it, it brings up this age-old question, are women funny? Mm-hmm. So I Googled this question, are women funny? And you can pull up all these really weird old articles from the New York Times from like 1895. This was an 1895 headline in the New York Times. Woman's sense of humor. It is frequently alleged that she does not possess any American facts to contradict this. And... Um, I mean, that was the headline in the New York Times. Facts <laughs> to contradict it. Okay. <laughs> Their facts were just a list of people they found funny, basically. I've never heard of women. any of them. Yeah. Okay. Um But this idea was sort of popularized in 2007 with a Christopher Hitchens essay in Vanity Fair called Why Women Aren't Funny. And you know, Christopher Hitchens, let's take him with a grain of salt, just as we would take E! Entertainment Television with a grain of salt. Sure. He's, he's pretty divisive.
1: Yeah. and And basically, Hitchens... The whole thesis is that since women are the childbearers, we cannot biologically risk the frivolity of humor,
3: oh yes, because we are just tasked with um the most important task in life raising <laughs> children raising children. He has a sentence that kind of bothered me about how men know that um, a placenta is filled with brain cells because as women become pregnant and have this placenta feeding their child, all the woman's brain cells go down to the placenta and are ejected from the body in childbirth. <laughs> so funny, funny and stupid. Oh, Chris. Oh, Chris. But the thing is, you know, it if women were to be funny, they'd have to be funny about their own experience, which is raising children. And it's immediately not funny as soon as, you know, a child dies. Yeah. But I mean, even he's saying, you know, every new mother, if they're talking about the funny thing their kid did, it's never really that funny.
1: And on top of that, Hitchens argues that men have a need to be funny because that is their one way of attracting a female.
3: Right. Women can be pretty, so they don't need to be funny mm-hmm. like women. Yeah. Uh, and
1: he, then he points to this uh, very small study um, that was conducted at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Um that was based on the responses of only 10 men and 10 women. And it found that uh, women and men have the same humor response, but that in women uh, we have more activity in the left prefrontal cortex, suggesting a greater emphasis on language and executive processing and in the nucleus accumbens, which is part of our reward center. So basically we aren't expecting as much reward when we hear a joke. And so when we finally get to the punchline, we, you know, we, Like, react more, I Mm -hmm. guess, and, um, are also quicker to point out stuff that is unfunny. Mm -hmm. So I think he's trying to say that we women are just kind of, kind of slow and, and just by that nature not going to be as good at telling a joke.
3: Well, how can you be quick when you got a baby to take care of? That's right. I mean, yeah, who can pay attention? <laughs> but you know, you know how Chris and I love our studies. So we did try and devote some time to finding, you know, studies about women in comedy, and there really aren't any. Right, Molly. Well, like, I was I scoured
1: um our, our magical internet sources. And I was very disappointed to find the lack of, uh, of studies on comedy and women. But it might just be because comedy is such a subjective field to study. Who's to say that, you know, some person who thinks Sarah Silverman is hilarious, you know, might think Tina Fey is, you know, boring as... Is- Grass.
3: Right, which is why you know there's sort of an inherent difficulty that Hitchens based his argument on this pretty small study. The only study I found when I was looking for studies on comedy and women was a study um, titled "Women's Comedy Preferences During the Menstrual Cycle," mm-hmm. and it was about how they presented women having their period with comedy, drama, and game show programs, mm-hmm. and asked them which would you rather watch, and the women chose comedy. So the study went these women must want comedy to relieve the cramps and achiness and miserableness of having a period. Wow. I mean, if that's the kind of study we got to pull from, I just, we were at a disadvantage, I would say. But on a side
1: note, Molly, if you have cramps, you might not want to be laughing really hard. That's well, just my own my own takeaway from
3: that. Study. Whether I have cramps or not, there I really don't want to watch a game show. Right. I <laughs> totally like how that was one of the options.
1: But then there's and then going back one more time to to Hitchens, um, he's saying too that uh that men don't want women to be funny. Right. You know they 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 view humor as this kind of competition between other males to see who can be the funniest, and women just need to sit back and be um their captive audience. And that was sort of echoed in um, studies that we ran across in psychology today that said that both men and women value humor equally, but in different ways. Like women um, value humor as a trait in a potential um, mate because they want to be, you know, they want the man to, to make them laugh. Mm-hmm. And men more um, appreciate humor in women in the sense of them uh laughing at their jokes. Laughing
3: well, at their joke or being witty, since wit is a sign of intelligence. Yeah. You know, witty women have always done fairly well. But
1: not being aggressively funny because a lot of times male humor, you know, is based on uh you know other people's misfortune.
3: Right. There's this theory of humor that uh in stand-up comedy you're asserting this power over some sort of subject and your audience because you're forcing them to recognize how funny you are. And Mm -hmm. that taking of power is not something we associate with women. You know, if you think back to the podcast we do on negotiation, women have a hard time asserting that power. And so it it does make some sense if you want to think about it in kind of a abstract way that women wouldn't want to claim that power Mm -hmm. over, you know, over men.
0: And even
1: like, I mean, while that might sound like kind of a, a sexist statement to make, um, even, uh, Fran Lebowitz mentions in this Hitchens article that, you know, in her opinion, like the cultural values right now um, are overall male-dominated and, you know, women breaking into um, comedy is challenging those more male cultural values. Right.
3: So what happened a year after the Hitchens essay is that Vanity Fair, I guess, wanted to do a Article on women comedians and kind of had to eat their words a little bit. They gave uh, a female writer, Alessandra Stanley, the task of kind of rebutting Hitchens, accompanied by pictures of you know people from Saturday Night Live dressed up in gorgeous outfits, photographed by Annie Leibovitz. It mm-hmm. was it was sort of the rebuttal, I guess you would say.
1: And the thesis of this whole Vanity Fair article is that women are enjoying kind of this new rise in comedy, um, popular comedy, thanks to. Television, uh, because as Nora Ephron puts it in the Vanity Fair article, there are simply too many hours on cable TV to fill for men to be able to dominate the entire comedy sphere, and so they simply had no other choice <laughs> but to start giving women more opportunities in comedic roles and as you know, producers and writers, a la Tina Fey, because women obviously have been comedic characters since you know as far back as you know in film history, um, but. A lot of times it was women telling the jokes that men wrote for them.
3: Right. They're playing characters in funny things as opposed to creating funny projects for themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. And they'd usually either be, you know, serve as more of a foil to a male character or be, uh, you know, the stereotype of like a Ditz or a Vamp or, you know, whatever else. And now they're actually becoming more of these uh, kind of, I guess, normalized roles, if you will.
3: Right. And, you know, it, it is worth giving a shout out to Lucille Ball. There was this famous um, comedy panel in 2000, where Jerry Lewis said, I don't like any female comedians. And Martin Short said, well, you must like Lucille Ball. Uh, had a very funny television show. And he was like, well, no, not really. Mm-hmm. But... It's very interesting to compare what Lucille Ball did to be funny to what someone like Tina Fey does to be funny.
1: Right. Cause a lot of times, you know, if you, if you watch I Love Lucy, you'll notice that, I mean, Lu- Lucille Ball, you know, is a very, you know, attractive woman, but at the same time, her comedy bits were usually based on her making herself look entirely unattractive or just like a buffoon. Yeah. Ridiculous.
3: Yeah. Whereas now this is sort of, um, and accompanying the rise of more funny women on television, more smart funny women, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And the th- is there anything more threatening than a smart and funny woman? Oh my. So now it's interesting that we started this with Saturday Night Live, sketch comedy show, because um, one thing I was reading in the Christian Science Monitor of all places, sort of weird to me, was that we definitely don't like the aggressive female stand-up comedian. You know, it's just although women have been very successful at that in the past, it's just not maybe what the, the big world is more, is comfortable with. But there was this idea that sketch comedy and improv is really what drove the rise of this more, um, popular female comedy because working together in a skit, uh, just is, appeals more to women than just standing on stage by yourself and trying to say to a man, oh, you're stupid, but in a funny way, because that wasn't very funny.
1: Yeah, because it's kind of the idea that women work, work well cooperatively and kind of have the, you know, the opportunity to bounce things off of one another and don't have to, you know, stand up there and kind of take that, you know, the power over the audience, like you had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, as people have to do in uh, in stand up. But that's not to say, though, Molly, that, that women haven't been successful in stand up, but it's been in a lot more maybe limited way, um, mm-hmm. at least in the beginning, um, than it was with men. Like if we go back and um, think about Lily Tomlin, for instance, um, a lot of her jokes uh, in the beginning of her career were based around, you know, domestic life, you know, things that, you know, a, you know, a woman, would be doing in her everyday life, whereas men like, you know, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, and Richard Pryor maybe had a little more opportunity and a little more license to uh, be more, be edgier mm-hmm. and be more groundbreaking.
3: Yeah, they could talk about different things. I mean, you think about someone like Roseanne Barr, um obviously not still her name. I don't know what her last name is anymore. I think she might just be Roseanne at this point.
1: Kind of like Madonna.
3: Yeah, but her whole shtick was that she was a domestic goddess who had these kids, this husband, and that's what they built her show around. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's almost kind of agreeing with Hitchens' argument that the women's role, the women's viewpoint on comedy is going to be this domestic sphere that they have. Mm -hmm. And so it's only, I think, recently that women can kind of get out of that domestic sphere or talk about their own domestic sphere that might be different than what, you know, our world considers the proper domestic sphere, if that makes sense.
1: Emily, I think one prime example of that is in um, uh, the realm of gay comedians. For instance, going back to the 70s when you have um, these male stand-up comedians like Richard Pryor and uh, all of the others who are being – who are maybe opening up um, more – Conversations, like uncomfortable conversations about, you know, things that are going on in society in a Mm -hmm. very kind of subversive way. I would argue that, um, uh, gay comedians, like female gay comedians in particular have done a lot to move us outside of that, like normalize, if you will, um, domestic sphere. Because uh, if you take, for instance, the work of Suzanne Westenhofer, who's the first openly gay comedian, and then, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, who came out on her show, like these, how that opened up kind of a new dialogue about homosexuality in America, which I think was a pretty groundbreaking way to do it through comedy, like women using comedy to, um, kind of bring about this kind of social change. Mm-hmm. But I would say still in the mainstream, there is a limit as to, you know, what women can talk about because, you know, if you do watch, you know, Ellen's talk show, a lot of times she still does go back to like talking Know, more about like her dogs and like her personal relationship. And I think that you can kind of extrapolate that some to um, like women in Hollywood in general and trying to push through to um, to kind of have uh, more the same comedic access to all those, you know, raunchy topics that men have.
3: Yeah, men, I think, have more license to, to talk about, you know, a one night stand than any woman would. Mm-hmm. Um and so I I do think that there's still that double standard with raunch. We found this good article in um Variety, was it? Yeah, this article
1: was written kind of around the premiere of The Ugly Truth starring Katherine Heigl, which was um sort of a, a very raunchy comedy, you know, starring this very attractive mainstream Hollywood female, which is a new thing. And it was about how um it's been very hard for women writers and producers and actress actresses to break into this realm of raunch comedy that's very Judd Apatow, you know, Will Ferrell, uh, Seth Rogen, etc. And um, it was just saying that uh, Hollywood doesn't want to put any money behind um, women in these roles. They would prefer for women to play kind of the more demure foil to a Will Ferrell than, you know, just being the the star of the show.
3: Yeah. So we don't necessarily want women to be potty mouths, but if we do, it helps, um, if they're extremely beautiful, which is something that second vanity fair piece picked up is that, you know, for a long time, uh, the comedians who were very successful weren't necessarily the most attractive, com- you know, commonly attractive mm-hmm. women. But now, I mean, if you look at this, uh, you know, we were talking about how they did this new Vanity Fair article by having these very sexy photographs of female comedians. And there has been an evolution from Lucille Ball trying to look as frumpy as possible to play this housewife to Tina Fey, who plays a character who allegedly eats a lot and is dateless, yet, I mean, Tina is gorgeous. Right. She's rocking the glasses, she's rocking some cleavage, and yet we're supposed to buy that she's, you know, this dumpy, put-upon woman.
1: Right, and then there's the whole issue of yet another Vanity Fair article. It was a um, profile of Tina Fey written by Maureen Dowd, and um, while it was an interesting profile, <laughs> learning different things about Tina Fey's character, it continually came back to her appearance and this issue of her having lost 30 pounds, because back in the day, she's 5'4", and mm-hmm. back in the day, I think her peak weight was like 150, which on a 5'4 frame, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, teeny tiny, but um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the fact that she just came back to it over and over and over again and had so many, you know, descriptions of her svelte frame that, it was kind of like, wait, are we more impressed that Tina Fey, you know, is so funny and witty, or are we just so impressed that she lost 30 pounds so that she can now be on television?
3: Right, which is a little disturbing when, you know, as we mentioned, the e-source that perhaps Casey Wilson was asked to lose weight, are we setting up, you know, on the one hand, we kind of celebrate the fact that we have more funny women on television Mm -hmm. than we used to, but are we setting all funny women up for this fall? Because in addition to being funny, they've got to be beautiful. So, I mean... That's an argument that goes both ways. It could be possible that it's good that we have more female kind of breaking ground, more females breaking ground within this sphere. But if they have to do it by being beautiful... Is it just going to screw everyone up later on? Yeah. And I think um,
1: I really liked this quote um, from a- Amy Poehler in a salon article that was uh, about the release of Baby Mama. Mm-hmm. And um, and she was saying that um, uh, I get worried for young girls sometimes. I want them to feel that they can be sassy and full and weird and geeky and smart and independent and not so withered and shriveled, you know, as you might think of, you know, with like the idea of like kind of a smart, serious woman who can't be who can't be funny and and jokey and weird. Yeah, And so I'm kind of hoping that, that that that's that's where comedy and women will head in the future, that it's not just going to be dominated by, you know, your looks. I mean, it is television. Yeah. Right now. And television is very looks obsessed. But. Um, I, th- I also thought it was telling that in that variety article about ranch comedy, there was, um, a quote from, uh, a male exec from New Line Cinema that was just saying, you know, funny is funny. Whether he was like, it's ludicrous to think that, you know, a man is going to be funnier than a woman. Like if, if people are laughing at the joke, then who cares who it is?
3: Yeah. And I think that's the risk of us doing, you know, this kind of topic. If you, if you make sort of this example out of Tina Fey as this beautiful, smart, funny woman, and then that becomes our standard, then it's impossible to uphold. Like, there's really no reason why we should have to single out Tina Fey as, you know, an ideal of funny or Sarah Silverman as an ideal of funny. We shouldn't necessarily have the prefix female comedian or funny woman. Yeah. I mean, it should just be, as you say, funny is funny. Um, and we probably do run the risk of just by singling them out like that, um, you know, making it hard for someone to follow in their footsteps. But, you know, it's hard to argue argue with the stats when you see more, you know, funny male fat guys running around.
1: Yeah. But then and and at the end of the day, I think the good thing to take away from it all is the fact that um, you know, with, with more women in comedy and more women in um mainstream comedy, uh I think it is another cultural stereotype that we are taking on and maybe breaking down because uh going back to that Christopher Hitchens article and this whole like kind of antiquated idea of, you know, comedy being aggressive and it being men's way of, you know, taking down the woman and we should just be their captive audience. I think the tables are turning.
3: I do. And, you know, one thing, one last thing I'll mention is that, um, if, if we're not achieving in stand up comedy, like we said, the rise of the skit has been pretty popular and it's possible that women just have this kind of sly sense of humor where they, put themselves in a skit like you watch Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin spar over some issue. Mm -hmm. And instead of there being necessarily a punchline, it's funny because you relate to it. It's funny because it's happened to you or it hasn't happened to you. And, you know, the tables are turned. And and so it's it's that's from a an idea from an essay by Lisa Merrill on feminist humor that, um you know, for better or for worse, if women can't take that power on a stage, they kind of take that power and put it in a scene and that's what's funny as opposed to a punchline. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and then finally, you know, going back once again to uh, to Amy Poehler, I think she made an interesting point um, about not having to worry. Like as women in comedy, you just can't worry about, you know, who you might offend and who you're poking fun of because men aren't going to do that. And she just says like the way to do it is to do what men do, which is just to assume power. You're not grateful
3: for it. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. So if we've got funny women out there, please, please email us jokes because, as Kristen and I have pointed out, we're not good at them. Well, you're not good at mom. I didn't. I didn't try to tell a joke
1: today, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna shoulder that burden.
3: Okay, fine. So send us your jokes, send us your thoughts, as always, to momstuff@howstuffworks.com. And I wanted to segue into listener mail. Listener mail. Ah! Now, the, the topic that is currently rocking our inboxes is everyone's story about their maiden name. Um, and we have gotten some really fascinating responses. And, um, I'm just gonna read one today. And it'll be tricky because, you know, we, we try not to say people's last names for privacy. So let's say that this, this is Anne's story. And let's say that, um, well, I'll just make up last names as we go along. These are not Anne's real last names. And I and I hope Anne doesn't get mad that I read this because this story infuriates her. And so I, I might just be enraging her right now. It's, as you see, it's a pretty troublesome story. Um, so when she got married, she was 28 years old, had two master's degrees, published articles and a thesis, lots of professional stuff under her belt. So even though she had never really cared for her maiden name, it was still a difficult decision to make just because she was an accomplished woman. And now I'll start reading her email directly. I also weighed my strong desire to have the whole unity thing among family members when we have children and to avoid all the confusion I saw with my friends who kept their name. As much as strangers' rude questions should not factor in, I also did not want to subject myself and future children to a lifetime of questions about my relationship status, etc., as well as just keeping things simple. I could hyphenate, but then I already said it was not my name I was enamored with, despite the strong connection with my identity as an educated and accomplished woman. So she thinks it out, blah, blah, blah. And she's going to go the Hillary Rodham Clinton route. Okay? The two last names. Apparently, the state of New York has decided that is no longer an option. I was told flat out that I would be forced to hyphenate my name if I wanted to keep any variant of my last name as a part of my name along with my husband's. The officials I spoke with claimed some sort of secret law, which they could not even reveal to me, having to do with security and new ideas, etc. So, it's already we're a lot, of, a lot of trouble over just a hyphen. So, now at this point, she's arguing with four people in the DMV, three more on the phone, two people at the courthouse, and a few more at City Hall. So, feeling very anger angered that something as personal as my name was against the law, I took my only other option to go through a legal name change. Well, this involved multiple trips to civil court to file a petition, have a meeting with the judge, the final ruling, proof of advertising, and then to pick up my documents. I don't remember how much it cost, but it was well over a hundred bucks plus my time away from work. I also had to advertise in a newspaper, and on top of that, in the year two thousand seven, I had to have my husband sign a letter saying he would allow me to take his name. Uh, I was in court with people who were changing their names to English names from foreign-sounding names, people with sex changes, and other reasons for name changes. But I have got to say, I was the only freaking person going there because of a marriage. In fact, the judge looked at me totally funny when I told him why I was there. He had never heard of the DMV doing that either and seemed to question my honesty as I explained why. I was eventually granted the change, but now whenever she does anything regarding IDs or taxes or anything... Uh, she has to explain the whole story over and over again, and it makes her blood boil. And so I'm sorry I brought it up, but it just shows how much trouble we have to go through to keep uh, just keep a name in the name. Yeah, because in the podcast,
1: a lot of the focus was on how hard it can be for men to take their wives last name. But turns out you're in New York. Watch out, gals. Yeah. Better better add a hyphen. Yeah. So thanks so much, Ann, for sharing your story. And thanks to everyone who shared their story. We're going to keep reading um, these in continued uh, listener mail segments. And uh, if you would like to see what Molly and I are thinking about during the week, you should head over to our blog called How To Stuff. And um, if you want to read... A variety of fascinating articles about every topic under the sun. You should head over to mine and Molly's professional home at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
0: PNC Bank, brilliantly
2: boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter.